Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode number 97 for the first third of January 2014. Today, I'm bringing you the first part of an interview with Michael Heiser to talk about ancient aliens. Dr. Michael Heiser is a scholar in the fields of biblical studies and the ancient Near East. Mike has two master's degrees in those fields and earned his Ph.D. in Hebrew, Bible, and Semitic languages at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is currently the academic editor at Logos Bible Software, where he does work on ancient language databases and resources. Mike is fairly well known for his online debunking of ancient alien or ancient astronaut theories, particularly that of the late Zechariah Sitchin. He's done this through his website, SitchinIsWrong.com, and his blog, Paleobabble. Those and many others of Mike's websites will be linked up in the show notes for this episode. So with that said, welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on, and uh, we might actually split this into two episodes, so people might, might get a double dose of you. Uh, so with that, with that said, uh, before jumping right into things, you are a PhD scholar in, basically for the layperson, ancient literature, uh, and you have peer-reviewed books and peer-reviewed papers. What got you interested in talking about things like ancient aliens, UFOs, Sitchins, and those related kinds of topics? Well, I basically got interested in this. Um, there's both a roundabout explanation and a more direct explanation. Uh, in terms of the roundabout explanation, I've always been interested in this sort of thing, uh, you know, strange things about antiquity. I can remember when I was a kid watching In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy, for example, and just being you know fascinated with that. So I, I always had some sort of interest, but I was sort of a dabbler at best, and more or less one about life, you know, in, some, in things closer to reality anyway. Mm-hmm. But when I got to uh, grad school and was at the stage where I was supposed to be working on my dissertation, like so many in my department, I was just sort of burned out by the whole experience. And I took what should have been the first year of my dissertation writing process and wrote a novel. <laughs> I didn't want to do anything that felt academic. I didn't want to write my dissertation. I just, I just needed a break. And so I, I thought that, hey, I have a neat idea for a novel. Why don't I take the things that I'm trained in, you know, ancient texts and all this other, you know, stuff as far as, you know, languages and whatnot, and then marry that to the, some of this paranormal stuff that I was real interested in. Mm-hmm. And I'd, you know, done a good bit of reading about. And then, of course, you know, make it sort of this supernatural, theological, religious thriller, and just kind of, just kind of do that for a year because it, it was something I'd always wanted to do was try to write fiction. So I figured, hey, why not? Well, I did that, and then, you know, to make a long story short, this thing that I wrote that wasn't actually even a book yet uh, got me on the Art Bell show. And the, the the original Art Bell show, Coast to Coast, mm-hmm. and that happened. I've never heard in of that a show. Really inexplicable way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it, it, the, the crazy thing is, is you know, having listened to that a lot, I thought you know, Art's a celebrity, and it's going to take months and months of 
people hammering at, hammering at him to try to get me on this show. And, and a friend of mine goaded me into this. And literally the next day, I came home after teaching, and my wife met me at the door. And she said, you're not going to believe who was just on the phone. I said, well, it was Art Bell. I thought, you, <laughs> you know, my friend must have called her. You know, this is a gag now. But it was really him. You know, I called the number back, and then I wound up getting booked on the show. Well, after that happened, then all these people started to surface. <laughs> and a lot of them were defending, you know, the ideas of this guy, Zechariah Sitchin. Well, you know, I had heard of Sitchin a little bit. <clears throat> I hadn't given him too much thought. I looked at his work because he claimed to be a, a scholar of ancient texts and these areas that I was, you know, studying in grad school. And I... It didn't take too long, you know, 10 or 20 pages into the 12th planet to know that this guy just, he doesn't really know any of, any of the things that's credited, that are credited to him. And I don't know that he's really studied any of these languages. It was, it was actually disappointing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I more or less just sort of tossed him to the side. Well, when I went on the show, then everything just sort of blew up, you know, and I was getting hate mail. I was getting love mail. I was getting invitations to do this or that show. And, and I sort of got dragged into, um, the subject matter a lot more deeply and quickly than I imagined I would, and that led to creating the Sitchin site because I figured, well, I need to I need to have a website, so I don't have to keep answering email. I can just send people links, and you know, the rest is you know history, so to speak. So I I'm always I've always been interested, but this isn't what I do. I mean, my life doesn't revolve around Zechariah Sitchin and ancient astronauts and. But it's been really interesting at all the things you get accused of, and oh, you know yes. I'm a disinformation working for fill in the blank, you know. And my wife loves that because you know her first question is always, "What am I doing with the checks?" You know, I don't see any <laughs> that's of the been my response. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you know, so that's been interesting, comical, a little bit disturbing, you know, in some cases. But you know, I I've had fun with it, and I think, or at least I hope that it's providing some sort of actual service to get involved because I do think scholars and, and people who are in the hard sciences and really experts in anything ought to be doing things to put the cookies on the lower shelf, you know, to, uh, to do what they do for the non-specialist. Mm -hmm. The intelligent person out there who wants to know has real questions, uh, but in a lot of cases, can't get to the information because what you get in periodicals like Time and Newsweek or whatever, if they ever touch any of this, is largely written by people who don't have content area expertise. They're they're experienced in journalism in a given area, but you know you you get distillation, you know, of the information. You never really get to the stuff that the the geeks are really talking about. Yeah. And so it's nice when a few of them will will hand that to people and. You know, try to make it useful. And so you don't regret getting into it. You don't regret sort of uh, having this sort of side, almost well, pretty much job, unpaid side job of doing <laughs> this extra stuff, uh, this ad addressing Stitchin stuff and the ancient aliens and getting the hate mail and the love mail. You don't really regret it. No, I, no, I, I don't regret it. it I, I've, I've enjoyed it for the most part. You know, the, and, and usually people. In the in the old days, you know, you'd you'd, you'd get a, an email from someone that was what I would call a, a committed Sitchinite, you know, a fundamentalist Sitchinite, and and I, I felt like you know it 
it's really my job to try to answer every point here and, and try to set this person straight and, and steer them to the right material. You know, thinking, you know, the, the mythology in my head at the time was this person really wants information. Exactly. Now, that person actually doesn't want information. <laughs> you know, that, that person, you know, the, 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 the person who's a zealot just wants to lambast you and no amount of actual data that you could show that person is going to matter at all. So it's easier now because I can sort of, after one email, I know if that's that person. Mm-hmm. And I can, that's what Google filters are for. But other people, I mean, I usually give people one or two chances, you know, at, at an email correspondence to, to, to be rational, to understand, you know, what it is I'm saying. And, and what, I, what, I, what I'm asking for, my tactic, if I have a tactic, is to ask for primary source data. You know, very simple things that, you know, if, if this material exists, you ought to be able to produce it, and so should your hero, you know, mm-hmm. Mr. Sitchin. He ought to be able to cite tablet line, what you know, whatnot. Um, and that, for the rational person, they, they usually get it, and then they go, oh, well, boy, I don't know what to say now. Well, that, that's an honest answer, but the zealot, it just doesn't matter you, you could, you know, if they believe the sky is red every day, that, that that's just what they're going to think. You know, it, it really doesn't matter. So once I got over that hump, I was sort of okay with the traffic, you know, with the, the mail traffic and whatnot. Uh, but I don't regret it. Okay, well, let's uh, get right into things. So we've, we've talked a little bit about Sitchin already. Um, let's talk more generally about the ancient alien stuff, sort of. If you could talk about what your broad issues are with uh, what one might call the fad of ancient aliens and ancient astronauts today, uh, because you take a very different approach than I do uh, with the astronomy part of it. Uh, you're much more the, the literature side of it, it seems. What are the broad issues that you have with the ancient aliens stuff today? Well, <clears throat> I mean, they're in, in broad strokes, again, that's, that's how you, you frame the question, in broad strokes... I don't like to see uh, ancient material of any kind uh, forced into the 20, 20th and 21st century as though those people were writing about you know, advanced science or advanced science fiction concepts. I think that's absurd. I also don't, don't like the idea that we would use modernity as an interpretive filter you know, on that material, so kind of coming at it from the opposite side. I think we need to let ancient material be what it is, say what it says, uh, within its own worldview and context, rather than trying to, you know, rape and pillage it for some idea that we desperately want to believe in. So there's there's this sort of, you know, let's be honest, you know, with with what this material is. That that's a broad stroke concern. Uh, I'm also concerned about how people tend to. Uh, use these ideas as some sort of, in their mind, legitimate competing worldview. You know, that, you know, beyond the, there's a theistic worldview, there's an atheistic worldview, or, you know, an atheist materialistic worldview. And now we have this other view where we have aliens coming here and, you know, (laughs) creating, you know, I don't like Darwin, I don't like anything about creation, so, hey, here we go, you know, let's just do this one. And sort of assuming that it's on the same level as either or both of the others, you know, that, 
intelligent human beings have been debating for centuries and millennia, and all of a sudden this one comes in, mm-hmm. and again, trying to, to assert similar truth claims. And I understand the impulse to do that. I mean, that, I'm not faulting anybody for being human here. But what I, what I really object to is the notion that, um, you know, we, I have this idea that I read from some guy who wrote in the 1970s, and this guy doesn't have a command of, you know, the scientific worldview. He doesn't have a command of the ancient text. But I'm still going to believe him because that just makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Or that helps me hate this other thing. Yeah, now you know how you know, I, I feel I, whenever I, anyone cites Hoagland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, exactly. You know, it, I, I don't... If, if you're gonna if you're gonna try for worldview option number three, there ought to be some basis somewhere for it. And you know, the idea that there are extrasolar planets, well, duh. Okay, I mean, even before you know the modern discoveries, we had people thinking about that, speculating on it. The question of other worlds, going all the way back to Aristotle and you know the Christian thinkers and well, everybody's onto this. Mm-hmm. Just because the idea is being entertained doesn't mean that it's real. And so, even though we have extrasolar planets, the idea that this somehow connects to you know what ancient aliens is saying—I mean, it's a non sequitur. So it's worldview by non sequitur. Uh, again, in broad strokes, that I really object to. You know, I, I'm willing to put your idea, you know, of ancient, you know, astronaut, ancient, you know, visitations by, you know, aliens, on the table. If first of all we can know for sure, a, that there are intelligent extraterrestrials, and b, that they actually came here. Once those two things are known, we can talk about what they might have done and who they might have encountered and who might have written about them in some way. But people don't don't want to you know go after those first two things, you know, in in that order. They they just like the idea and it doesn't matter how many non sequiturs they have to build, you know, to this this bridge from what I like to convincing someone else to like it. It just doesn't matter to a lot of people. I think it's really poor thinking. So I'm I'm concerned about that because it becomes a religion. It becomes an alternative, you know, worldview or religion for a lot of people. And they they sort of orient themselves to this thing that really has nothing going for it, either philosophically or scientifically. So you mentioned the uh, the interpretation uh, or a literal reading of the text. Um, I guess one of the, the classic ones and I'm pretty sure I've heard George Norrie ask you about every time you're on, is the Ezekiel's <laughs> wheels within wheels. So, I mean, I guess the ancient alien people like to say, well, this is clearly they're describing a spaceship or a beam ship or, or something yeah. like that. So I'm curious. Yeah, clearly. As, yeah, well, so I'm curious as to how you would go about saying, <clears throat> well, no, this isn't what it's saying. We have to interpret it. Uh, mm-hmm. relative to the time that it was written. Uh, could you go through sort of that example, or if there's a better one that you like more, uh, but basically an example? Oh, no, no, that, that, that's, a, that's a good one. I mean, I, I'm always fascinated how the aliens manage to build the, uh, the landing legs of their craft to look just like cow legs. I mean, how, that's just an amazing coincidence to me. Um, you know, if you want to press literalism, if the writer is using that description, 
then the you know, the first reflex would would be like, well, you know, they would have known what a cow's leg looks like back then. It's an agrarian culture, so you know, okay, we'll give them that. And 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 what might they be talking about that in their artwork or their iconography that used cow legs that you know match up with the rest of the description? But no, we don't we don't go there. We we aren't consistently you know literalistic. We're going to take an idea and then literalize it to the point where it must have been a craft, even though the account says it was on the ground. So what is the, um, the broader context? Because I'm pretty sure probably... The, the broader context is actually... Yeah, yeah it's, actually, it's actually easy. Again, and it, this disturbs a lot of, you know, quote-unquote Bible believers out there, too, which, you know, again... I get hate mail from them too. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm the equal opportunity offender, like I like to say. But what's going on in Ezekiel one is you have a description of of a throne. I mean, it, there's someone seated on it. Okay, it's it's a throne. The same description occurs in Daniel chapter seven, and it's called a throne. The fiery wheel, the whole bit, uh, is, is you know found elsewhere. But you have a description of a throne, and there's this platform. Underneath the platform, there are these bovine creatures that have four faces mm-hmm. and it's a it's a throne dace it's, it's a throne pedestal now in the artwork of the day and the sculpture of the day and the statuary of the day you find these these are not hard to find they're not hard to locate in the archaeological record you know they the, the four faces just happen to be the four cardinal points of the Babylonian zodiac. Why is it important that it's Babylonian? Well, because Ezekiel's in Babylon. That's where the text has him. They're in captivity in Babylon. And so there must be some connection. Why is Ezekiel using Babylonian throne imagery with the four faces point to the four cardinal points of the zodiac that the Babylonians use? But on the throne is not the Babylonian god Marduk. It happens to be Yahweh, the god of Israel. You know, it, <clears throat> once you have the pieces together and you can match them up with iconographic representations, then the theological messaging is pretty clear. No, it isn't Marduk that rules over all nations from corner to corner to corner to corner of the earth. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel. Even though we got our butts kicked by the Babylonians, and here we're sitting by the river Kivar in exile, I, Ezekiel, who is a, who's a priest of Israel, am writing to you, my fellow captives, and I'm telling you to not lose heart, to not lose faith. God is still on the throne, so to speak, you know, rather cliche-ish, but that's the point. Mm-hmm. Don't lose heart. We're not going to be here forever. We're going to get out of here, and we'll find out whose God is really God. I mean, it's a theological message using imagery of the day that would have communicated very well. It has nothing to do with flying saucers from other worlds. But in isolation, when you say Ezekiel's wheels within wheels, then you can sort of make it sound like anything, I guess. Sure. I mean, if, and if Ezekiel had words like, like you know, silver or silvery or round or disc in his vocabulary, we find those words elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, but not coincidentally, none of them are used in Ezekiel 1. Okay. In other words, the, the, the very vocabulary that, that the ancient alien enthusiast will want to convince you of, will want to use to convince you of flying saucers elsewhere, you won't find any of that vocabulary in the chapter, even though that vocabulary is at the writer's disposal. 
well, he, he must have done a really crummy job then of describing that flying saucer if he didn't really describe it the way, you know, we think of it elsewhere. And, you know, all these other, you know, presumably ancient texts describe, you know, discs and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it, it's, it's inconsistent on every level, but it is a very easy go-to passage if you're looking to pilfer an ancient text for a 21st century idea that you like. It sounds like uh, it's quote mining and then in, in, on the first level, it just is. taking the passage and then interpreting that quote mine however you want to. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it is. We've gone into specifics there. Um, are there major issues besides Sitchin stuff, which we'll get to, um, but are there other major points that you you find come up time and time again that you've addressed with the ancient astronaut enthusiasts? Yeah, I think it's one of their big big problems is a very low view of ancient human intelligence and technological capability. In, in what and way? It, it really, well, <clears throat> specifically in in terms of like megalithic structures, you know, moving large stones, that sort of thing, you know, building temples and pyramids and whatnot. I mean, what, what you have is you have this is this isn't even science or worldview by anomaly and of course Hoagland's famous for that yes. you know it, it, there's an anomaly here so let's construct a worldview around it um, <clears throat> this doesn't even get to that point it's I'm looking at something that's really impressive and I know I couldn't have built that therefore no human could have built it it must have been aliens I mean it, it, it's that dumb <laughs> you know in terms of a of a reasoning process, and and then the 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 thing that reinforces that is the myth that oh scholars and scientists are just so overwhelmed and per perplexed by this they don't know what to say they're completely flummoxed by this or well, the, actually they are they have two different models therefore they don't know what's going on <laughs> because right. they don't agree <laughs> right you know yeah they they can't they can't agree they're just you know at each other's throats and they don't want to entertain this wonderful answer over here yeah it it it's a lot of misconceptions about what scholars do it's a lot of wishful thinking about what scholars say or don't say it the, the you know and that that's partly the scholars are partly to blame for that because a lot of the discussion that happens very specifically to these things whether it's building or you're like, hey, there's weird mummies over here with red hair. They must be Nephilim or something like that. I mean, it, all of this stuff is known. It gets discussed, but it's in what we like to call the fugitive literature, you know, that, that few people are even aware that there's a journal called X and that people actually write for that. And it gets published, and their copies are stored somewhere. I mean, you, it, it's, it's been discussed. It's been hammered out. It's not always conclusive, but but they're not overwhelmed by the fantastic, compelling nature of this question and and the and the quote unquote evidence that somebody like von Daniken or Sitchin or you know is proposing. That's not the accurate picture at all. But a lot of people never get to that material because they're never directed to that material. And unfortunately, you know, when I, when I do that, I do a lot of that on my blog, some people will say, wow, this is really good. It, thank you. You know, I finally know that somebody's thinking about this. Or that scholar will be part of the conspiracy. 
Mm-hmm. And again, you know that, that you can't help those people. You, you, there's just really nothing you can do. Um, the best you can do is say, hey, what you're saying isn't true. Here's the work that's been done. You need to first demonstrate that this is incoherent, this work that's been done. And once you do that, then I'm willing to listen to some other alternative. You have to refute this really in, a, in, a, in an exhaustive, coherent way for your wacky view <laughs> you know, to get a hearing. But they won't do that. You know, and that, one other broad stroke thing here is that the people tending to do research in this area, <clears throat> I'm willing to say never. Maybe there's, a, there's been an exception out there somewhere. But I would, I would venture to say never submit their material to peer review. Why? Okay, you get a guy like, well I, I, well, I think they do it because peer review exposes them <clears throat> in, both, in both the sense of I'm handing my work now over to experts for evaluation. That's part of the exposure. But then when the, when the responses to that work come back and they're not favorable, in, in fact, they, they can be quite harsh, then they're exposed for really their shortcomings as researchers and thinkers. So they don't want to take the risk of doing that because they're writing for, I mean, I'm not using this word pejoratively, but they're writing for amateurs. They're writing for people who are not specialists in any of these areas. They're interested, though. So they're writing for interested people. And if they don't submit their work to peer review, they can pretty much say whatever they want to say. And who's going to criticize them? You know, because most scholars don't pay any attention to this anyway. So you meant that the people not submitting to peer review are the ancient aliens people, not the people actually yes. figuring out how to make the pyramid. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the ancient alien researcher, the, the, the one who's trying to promote the idea. They just don't submit their work to peer review. And, and you know, I, I, I get all over, you know, people for that, the researchers and the people who are, you know, emailing me or trying to support them. I say, look, this is important. It's important that someone who really thinks they found something, and you don't have to have degrees. You could, I mean, I know lots of people that are retired or they just, they've been a dabbler all their life in something, and they really do know a lot about a given subject, even though they don't have degrees in it. Well, those people, the ones I know, still, when they want to publish something, they will submit it to peer review, or they will send it to experts just to get some feedback. And then they'll be honest you know, with, with that, and they'll continue their work. Well, you get people like Von Daniken or Jason Martell or whoever it is, they, they just won't do that because they, it's a threat to them. And they can always hide behind the idea that, well, my work won't get a positive response because there's just this grand conspiracy to keep this, this great knowledge from the public. And it's a very convenient thing to hide behind. Um, and what I usually tell people that is, look, submit it anyway. Save the responses. Keep submitting it. You know, and, and once, once 50 journals have turned this down for non-substantive reasons, then you might have some censorship or some filtering going on. But I don't think that's ever going to happen because journals, you know, you and I know because we, we read journals, they're not averse at all no. to publishing competing views, really diametrically opposed views, if the research on either side of those things is, is coherent and, and has, has been done with proper methodology. They're not opposed to that at all. Especially in letters so, to the editor. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> anything like that. But, again, the average interested amateur, you know, non-specialist, the person who's just watching History Channel and is, is an intelligent person. I'm not saying doofus has watched the History Channel, even though I think of it as the Fantasy Channel now. But people are really interested in these questions, these things. And so that they are the audience. And, and if they're not experts in any of these other areas, the people promoting this stuff, making a living by, by doing this, they, they know. They know that they're better off not submitting their work to experts because they can say what they want to people who don't know better. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. Yeah, it's like Hoagland. I mean, actually, he just said, I think the first time that he got on Art's Dark Matter show, now, well, now defunct Dark mm -hmm. Matter show, uh, yeah, he really. said, Art, this is peer review. This process that we're going through right now that I'm telling, you know, I'm telling you go to this image on your website, <laughs> that's peer review. And I had a few listeners to my podcast, you know, writing in and being like, I can't believe Hoagland just said that. But that seems like it almost, oh it's what it is. It's like an echo chamber. I mean, that's that's what the ancient aliens on the, the History Channel seems to be. And along those lines, I was wondering if you have ever gone head-to-head -head with any of those um, ancient astronauts, ancient aliens, advocates? Like, have you ever debated or directly addressed Jason Martell or uh, you know, even Giorgio Tsoukalos or someone else like that? No. I mean, I was asked, you know, years ago, obviously, when, when Sitchin was still alive, um, back in 2000, whatever my first appearance was, 2001, I think. It's either 2001 or 2000. I can't remember what it was. But the first time I was on uh, Coast to Coast, Art asked me, if I would debate Sitchin on his show, and I said sure, you know, I, I, you know. Afterwards, there were other hosts. I mean, Art didn't say this, but other people heard that, and I was on other shows, and they they told me off the air that you don't have a prayer of that ever happening, and and they were right. You know, I was I was a little naive, you know, at, at that point. I thought he would accept, but he never did. I've never debated uh, any of you know any of these other figures. There there was somebody years ago trying to coordinate. A, uh, a debate that would involve me and Martel, and I think some other people, but for some reason it, it never happened. You know, I'll, I'll just give you my honest opinion on, and I, I know debates, I guess, serve some purpose, some good purpose, but to me debates are for the lazy. Mm. And what I mean by that is, if you really want to know what I think, and how I would respond to what Jason thinks or, you know, Tsoukalos thinks, then what you'll do is you will read the things that I write where I can lay out step by step. I can show images. I can direct you to primary sources. I can do what I do, and they can do what they do. You will read the discourse. You will invest the time to know. Well, you know, people don't want to do the work. They only want to read. Okay, and so what happens is people will call for debates where they can hear essentially sound bites. Yeah, and who, whoever whoever comes off as clever or has a good line, well, that's the winner. Again, debates are for the lazy. Okay, if you really want to know, you will do the research. You will do the work. Again, I, I guess they serve some good purpose. I'd I'd be hard pressed to articulate what that is. Uh, I've 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 been in a few debates on different topics, and very rarely I, I don't I don't know that I've even ever 
heard someone that went into it on one side flip to the other. They're they're just they're for people who who kind of want to. Uh, there's no European soccer game going on right now, so let's go to a debate. You know, we just want to hear people fight. You know, we want to fight ourselves, and then we'll go out and you know we'll go to the pub or whatever, and that's that. Uh, that that isn't that isn't putting the, the kind of work in that's necessary to really think through a subject. So I'm not real keen on them. You know, I did say yes, you know, to, to arts, and I said yes to the other thing, but a lot of this doesn't really translate well, you know, to especially radio, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it would have been with, with art, because a lot of these things you have to show visuals. Yeah. And you, ha- you have to direct people to... To, to again databases or primary sources and things you can't really do that on radio so it, it might have been really a dull kind of stupid experiment you know to do in the first place but that's usually sort of what people think of right away so what has been the reaction to your work on ancient alien stuff in terms of both positive and negative and on negative the two sides of the negative because you said that you get uh, negative responses both from uh, more biblical Christian people, but also you get the negative responses from the ancient aliens people. Well, from the ancient aliens people, um, you know, it, it, it's usually a diatribe. If people bother to, to email me, it's it's to yell. I mean, they there are very few people who sincerely want information. You, you've you've attacked their hero, and now they're getting back at you. And you know, I understand that. So there's that. Um, on the, on the Christian side, there are, there's also some of that, and it's usually from um, real strict, you know, 24-hour-day literal creationist, you know, kind of people. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm not their special target. They do that to anybody who isn't them. I remember sitting down before the... Uh, I had dinner with Hugh Ross before the Godman ET conference that Hoagland was part of way back in... I guess that was, again, 2003 or something, as well. I was still in grad school. And uh, <clears throat> Hugh told me, he's an astrophysics guy and not a, not a young earther or anything like that. Mm-hmm. He said the only place he's ever been picketed at, and he does a lot of speaking. Yeah. So the only place I've ever been picketed at is at churches. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's always the same crowd. You know, it, it's, it's, the, it's the, the hyper-literalists, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, just... If you're not us, you're you're them, and that means you're against us, and all that kind of thing. So I get a lot of it that from from that angle, because my my concern is that a lot of this thinking, <clears throat> generally, is the same. Again, this over literalizing of the text, where oh, I see a, a spaceship in there, I see an alien life form in there, I see this, I see that, and if you disagree with them, then, well, you're not taking it for what it says, you know, literally, right there. Never bothering to even ask the question, well, what does literalism even mean? And and how, how workable and livable is it in any given text in any given day of our lives? You're never bothering to answer the, or ask those questions. So it, it, it creates, again, this, this enemy situation. But, you know, even beyond that, I see... Uh, Christians who are interested in all this kind of stuff, the UFO stuff, the alien stuff, and, and, and what I see them doing is they're borrowing, really Im- imbibing on a lot of these really bad arguments about the ancient world generally, but including the Bible, and then they're using them as, as interpretive filters for their Bible and for their worldview. 
And when you when you point that out and you give them examples, they they don't really take it well. No, <laughs> no, they don't. You know, and and I can even say, look, I'm on your side. You know, I, I I'm I'm a theist. I'm a Christian. You know, I, I I understand this. I have a high view of this thing we call the Bible. I mean, I, I I'm sure I have different views about it than you do, but I'm I'm in your corner. I want you to have a good day. Um, but they just, you know, there's 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 a a visceral reaction because it's interpreted as as an us them, you know, enemy sort of relationship. And but again, I I, I kind of treat that crowd the same way. You know, I. If you're looking for information, I will I will be as helpful as I possibly can, you know, given my limited resources and time. But if you're not, I'm really not going to keep this conversation going. You know, I, I I really can't help. There's nothing I can say. So you just sort of let them go. Okay. Um, to shift gears entirely um, and take a break from ancient aliens, etc. Um, I was listening to the interview that you gave to Art uh, very recently. And you talked about an investigation that you facilitated into the MJ-12 documents. And mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about that because I, I thought, personally, uh, hopefully my listeners will as well, I thought that it was fascinating. To start off with, though, could you give a, a very brief overview about what these documents are alleged to be and alleged to be in support of? Sure. Well, in, in briefest terms, the... The so-called majestic documents, MJ-12 documents, are a set of leaked documents. I mean, now we're up to hundreds, and and some some of the sources are known. But initially, in the 1980s, they were a set of leaked documents that purported to come from some sort of government or intelligence insider. And the documents made you know some pretty spectacular claims. You know, they were, for example. Uh, internal memos, you know, that, that passed, you know, from presidents and other higher ups, you know, cabinet officials, members of a, of an organization that was known as Majestic 12, you know, that, that was supposedly formed after the Roswell incident in the 1940s, 1947, to investigate, you know, crash retrievals and things like this. So they mentioned crashes of flying saucers. They mentioned EBEs, extraterrestrial biological entities, in other words, aliens mm-hmm. in them. There was, there's speculation in them uh, back and forth about, <clears throat> well, the only explanation for this is something off-planet. I mean, there are these sort of throwaway kind of conversations or terms that are used, and even getting people like Oppenheimer and Einstein involved, and some of them predate the World War II. They're, um, well, they, well, they predate Roswell. Back in the early 40s, there's some that were supposedly written by FDR and, you know, about planetary intelligences and things like this. So in the UFO community, the, the majestic documents, at least at one time, were viewed as sort of a, you know, a smoking gun. You know, that, wow, you know, we, we've, we finally got documents that are real and, and they talk about all the things, you know, that, that we've been saying, you know, for years and, and you couldn't get this through freedom of information, you know, act, you know, somebody on the inside had to, you know, risk his life and limb and career, you know, to, to you know, put these out to the public, and boy, we hope he doesn't get caught, you know, sort of the Edward Snowden kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, but but put back, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And so that's what the MJ documents are. Now, they have a very checkered history. Anyone who's really into ufology will know that a lot of these, again, were are traced to a guy named William Doty, 
who is a well-known disinformation person, even within the UFO community. Uh, one of these people that basically, you know, he's like the Spader character on what's what's the new show, The Blacklist. You know, <laughs> you trust this guy ever at any given point. You know, that that's the Doty character right there. So they, within the UFO community, a lot of people don't buy them today because they just have such a, a checkered history. Now, there are some that do, some that think some of them are genuine, and so they're still around, they're still alive, they're still part of the discussion, uh, and they are, again, viewed as proof positive of an alien cover-up. What kind of analysis did you do, or did you help to do? Yeah, yeah, I, the, the latter would be more accurate. The Majestic documents have, have had a very thorough going over from a forensic perspective, you know, things like dating of the ink, the, 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 the kind of paper, the typography, all that kind of stuff. Um, and a, a lot of the material itself, and a lot of that kind of investigation has verified to the best of anyone's ability that, hey, this, this thing I'm holding here actually did come from the 1940s, and we know what typewriter it was on, all that kind of stuff. So that doesn't really help, because if someone were on the inside that wanted to fake these things, that's what they would that's what I would use. I mean mm -hmm. I wouldn't be an idiot and you know come up with something that, you know, came from the twenty, you know, nineteen nineties or something, a year two thousand. So what I wanted to do, since I was I'm in, you know, language and linguistic areas, I knew that there were methods out there where documents, specifically in terms of verifying authorship, could be tested. There were there were people out there who did that stuff. Um, within the field of New Testament, this has been, I don't want to say it's still in its infancy, it's a little bit beyond infancy, but there are people who are doing this kind of work to Greek New Testament books and, and whatnot. So I have the idea, well, I, I want to find somebody who does this and ask them if they would be willing, if they'd be interested in having their methods applied to some of these documents. And I found that person. Her name is Carol Chasky. She has her PhD from Brown. This is her field. She has a very long resume, long history of doing this in the legal system, uh, where she is brought in and asked to verify the authorship of some document in some court case. I mean, you, people can go to her website and see all the cases she's worked on and whatnot. Uh, as part of her doctoral work, she developed a computational linguistic process to do what she does today. And so I thought, well, this is the perfect person. Well, I called her, and lo and behold, she'd actually been approached by the the, the Woods, Bob and Ryan Wood, who, who are the sort of caretakers of the majestic documents. She had been approached years earlier, but they had backed out of the discussion. And she said she didn't know why. They just lost interest. Well, that made me even more interested. And I asked her, will you do this? And, and we worked out an, uh, an arrangement where, I could give her what she needed. Now, I've used the word authorship a few times here. What, what Carol does is something called authorship attribution research. And so right away, what that means is I, we, we can only apply this method to majestic documents that actually have an authorship claim. In other words, here's this document. I'm reading it. There's lots of stuff about aliens in it. And then it's signed. Mm -hmm. by a particular person. Okay, so there, there's a, and there's, there's no evidence that this was uh, fabricated in the sense that 
somebody else wrote this memo for FDR or something like that. Even if it was dictated like to a secretary, it's still good because the secretary is going to type out what the person says. So mm-hmm. we had a little bit of leeway there. But if it has a certain authorship attribution, that was good. Another criteria that... that uh, criterion that uh, Carol mentioned was it had to have a, a decent amount of length. You couldn't just have a, a memo of one line. You know, you, it needed to be at least a paragraph, you know, something like that. Uh, she also, you know, we both of us really wanted to zero in on documents that had an author, were long enough, and that also kind of focused on extraterrestrial content. You know, extraterrestrial claims. Mm-hmm. Um, it also had to be prose sentences, like it couldn't be a list, like a uh, a register of you know things in a box or something like that. It had to be prose text. There, there were certain hoops we had to jump through, and so we we did that. And what my job was, I had oh somewhere in the neighborhood of nine or ten documents that had a name, so I had sort of nine or ten categories now, nine or ten people, and there were FDR, people like Truman, Eisenhower, Nathan Twining, Alan Dulles, you know, things like this. So my job, my part of this was to go out and find documents that no one would dispute were written by that person. And then I had to have them typed out, if they weren't already, exactly, even with errors, even with punctuation, because in... What Carol does is her method doesn't look for uh, vocabulary that you would expect uh, for the period or for the subject matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that. What she's looking for are, are really the small words, function words, things like conjunctions, things like um, you know, interjections, punctuation, the way a person punctuates uh, habitually. Uh, the way they, they use semicolons versus commas or periods, things like that, things that just unconsciously you don't even think about. They're ingrained in the way you write. Uh, different phrases, uh, you know, sort of, you know, colloquialisms that are germane to the individual. That's what, that's what her method targets. Things that you can't consciously fake if you were a faker. Mm-hmm. All right, because you'd have to know, you'd have to be living inside the person's head, and even shut shut your brain off because these are subconscious traits. They just work them, themselves out by habit in what you write. So I had to you know, find documents nobody would dispute, preserve everything down to the jot and tittle, the punctuation, have those typed out, submit submit that to her, and then she would do the rest. And so that's what I did. And we had uh, batches of those that she. Uh, applied in her method to, we can describe the method if, if you like. I don't know how, how deeply you want to get into this, but that's what she does. You know, she, she wanted to do, get a profile of the knowns, the ones that were undisputed, mm-hmm. and then we would do the same to the unknowns, the questionable ones, the majestic ones, and then the, the process would at some point compare the profiles of the known FDR documents to the speculated FDR documents. And not only that, but she would compare the speculated documents to all the other profiles, too. And each one would get compared to all the other profiles as well. Because what what, what her process does, again, is it, it tests for likelihoods. <clears throat> if if this document, the unknown, was written by you know the one over here in the known, 
there should be a very close pattern that emerges. If the pattern, though, that emerges in the speculated pile is actually very closely aligned to three or four other profiles that it shouldn't be close to, that's really suspicious. Yeah, that so, would look like yeah. maybe there was a common hand in those three or four piles, you know, that sort of thing. That's what she looks for. Yeah, so with that description, um, I don't think we need to get into more specifics. <coughs> what did mm -hmm. she conclude from this analysis? Well, basically there was only one document in the whole bunch, in all of the unknowns, uh, that passed muster, you know, that, that was very likely... Uh, written by the person you know, whose name it bore. And, you know, that document, it turns out, was one of the more innocuous ones. You know, it, it, it talks about, hey, I wonder, you know, if, if we're dealing here with, you know, something that's not, you know, from our world or something like that. Or, it, it, you know, it would refer to a administrative, you know, processes and levels, you know, make sure that so-and-so hears about this crash or something like that. There was nothing spectacular in it as far as like an, uh, an extraterrestrial body or something like that. Mm -hmm. So the one that, that passed, you know, wasn't really that, that big of a deal. I, I included in this two that, that I knew were fakes because of forensic work. I wanted to see if her methods would catch them, and they did. Um, you know, so that that was good for me. I didn't tell her that until after the fact. Uh, you know, naturally she was glad to hear it too. Um, and, you know, all of this is described in a report people can get on my website. You know, the the, the paper I wrote about this is free. So, all of the majestic documents, the ones that I could get a, a comparative group in terms of a name, and then you know, documents that were definitely written by that person, all of them failed. But, but the most interesting thing is that there were several authorship groups, you know, speculated author groups that were very close in alignment to each other. And again, I have a visual way of showing people this in the in the document they can get on my website. But Carol told me that when she saw that, she said, and she was very careful about her wording, and you know, she wanted me to put it just as very specific way. She said, it doesn't prove that those documents were written by the same hand, but it really suggests that the same hand was involved. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for her part, she this her test just threw the whole, you know, the whole thing out. You know, the, the whole majestic mystique just disappeared. Now, in fairness, I mean, I, I will try to be fair. These, these tests didn't include other documents that had no authorship and some of those like the uh, there's something called the extraterrestrial manual you know, operations manual it has no authorship attribution so it couldn't be tested according to this method mm -hmm. so there are still documents within the majestic document you know pile that have not been tested for any sort of by any sort of linguistic method as to their verification so there are still some that are we would classify, if we're going to be fair, as unknown. But what it does show is that, except in one case, the documents that are attributed to people that you could test are more likely than not to not have actually been written by those people, and many of them that say they're written by different people were actually probably written by the same person. 
Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, again, you have this overlap with three or four of the author groups, so that, that is a definite possibility that you could have the same hand. You have to ask yourself, well, how would, how would they do this? Well, I mean, if, if I were the person on the inside that wanted to create these things, you know, once I got the, the proper materials, I would want there to be thematic similarity. You know, I, my own style, if I had to add text rather than just copying a paragraph here and moving a paragraph from this other thing over here, if I actually had to write text to make it coherent, you know, make coherent sentences and paragraphs, mm-hmm. the pattern of my own mind, you know, working through my hand and writing is going to show up, and so that would account for the similarities. You know, I have my, you know, my signature, as it were, my mental signature, uh, my cognitive linguistic signature would be all over that stuff. And so it would be very easy to copy, paste, type out longhand once you knew what you wanted to say to create these things. So, but if you did that, and if you had to add your own text, you're going to get results like we saw. So they're they're pretty suspicious. Uh, you know, I, I think that's the most generous thing I could say that they're really suspicious as far as the authorship attribution, and, and I I consider them bogus uh, on the basis of this. Not to mention their own checkered history. But again, it's only part of the of the collection you know that are known as the majestic documents. Thanks to Michael Heiser, and this has been, as I said, the first part of a two-part interview. Join us next time for the second part, where we will follow up and go into the details of some of the evidence or the claimed evidence for Zachariah Sitchin's various Anunnaki, ancient alien-type ideas. That wraps up this topic for the 97th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, a comment on the blog post for the episode, and even a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me, at PseudoAstro, or personally, DR, that's Dr. Astro Stew. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, though I'm usually a month or two behind in getting back to you. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, Random people online, random people on the street corner. Thanks.